Today on StateScoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, why talking about cyber vulnerabilities might be a good thing. It's really difficult for administrators, for policymakers to know that there's a problem that needs addressing if people don't talk about it. Tips for getting anything done in state government. We all collectively as a team want to be following the grain of the wood. And in order to do that, build those, you know, those partnerships early on, show that you're delivering some value, and then continue to build upon that. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, as well as the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Sandra Blakemore is the new acting commissioner of Chicago's Department of Assets, Information, and Services. She replaces David Reynolds, who left city government to head up campus facility operations for the Obama Foundation. Blakemore now heads the sprawling consolidated agency that oversees technology, the city's motor vehicle fleet, and public buildings. Washington State CISO Vinod Brahmapuram is leaving government. Brahmapuram has led the state's cybersecurity office since October of 2019. State CIO Bill Kehoe will act as the state CISO until the position is filled. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is proposing $12.6 million to improve the city's digital services. The increase in funding includes $1 million for a redesign of the city website and $4.1 million for a tech enablement team to support city agencies. Few technology leaders in K-12 school districts believe their organization's top officials have a, quote, high awareness of cybersecurity issues, according to a new poll. That lack of awareness comes as recovery costs for cyber attacks against K-12 districts are increasing. Doug Levin is the National Director for K-12-6, the Security Information Exchange for K-12 school districts. He tells StateScoop's Benjamin Freed why the number of cyber incidents against K-12 schools could even be higher than reported. Well, the fact of the matter is that looking across the country, um, the requirements for school districts to report cybersecurity incidents broadly are uh, are weak uh, to non-existent, and that's going to be dependent a little bit on state law. Uh, when there are public disclosure requirements, usually they're limited to uh, data breach uh, incidents, at least data breach incidents that the school district itself confirms happened. Um, I, I say it that way because, uh, you know, many school districts for a long period of time, for instance, felt like um, a ransomware incident was not something that involved uh, a data breach. And so, you know, in some cases, there were pretty significant cybersecurity incidents for which there is a sort of a compelling public reason uh, to, to, to know about it uh, that have never been uh, disclosed. And um, yeah, in this, this year's uh, most recent report, really shined a light on that issue. Frankly, if it wasn't for the work of a number of investigative reporters across the country who are filing freedom of information requests uh, to school districts, we would know actually much, much less about the state of uh, K-12 cybersecurity. So we have the, the breach notifications uh, or the data breach requirements. Uh, why is it important that schools also be more forthcoming when ransomware happens? It's really difficult for administrators, for policymakers uh, to know uh, that there's a problem that needs addressing if people don't uh, talk about it. And so this was a, an issue that, you know, dozens and hundreds of school districts were experiencing, but was never talked about. And in my conversations with school districts that had been victims of these sorts of incidents, uh, in some cases that led them to believe that this was just uh, an issue that was facing their school district. Uh, and, but as it turns out, 
Um, this is something that is facing the sector as a whole. And that was just not clear until people started having more conversations about it. Um, secondly, I mean, it is important to let um, law enforcement know, of course, right? Because they're going to be the parties that are able to gather the evidence and bring uh, those responsible uh, to justice. Um, it's also important <clears throat> for school districts to be sharing you know, information about the incidents they're experiencing with their peers. Um, we see uh, pretty frequently what I might consider to be copycat attacks, right? But essentially, school districts run the same types of IT systems, maybe, maybe different brands, but they have the same general needs. Uh, and the tools and the tactics, the techniques um, that uh, threat actors use to compromise school district systems um, are, you know, repeated uh, time and again against different targets, right? So if school districts are able to share or willing to share that information with organizations like ours or through other groups, schools can take steps to protect themselves um, proactively from, you know, the actual sorts of incidents that are compromising other school districts. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, finally, then I just think it's important uh, that, you know, the victims of these incidents, right, educators themselves, students and their parents get notified in a timely way so that they can uh, take action to protect themselves. And we have seen cases where school districts um, have uh, waited, uh, you know, frankly, months and months um, to admit uh, that uh, data was exposed. And, and why, why, why do you think that, why do you think it is that they wait so long? You know, I, so in some cases, uh, I think it's under the advice of, you know, legal counsel or insurance providers who would prefer them to say as little as possible for liability reasons. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think it's, it largely comes down to not wanting to feel like they've, they've suffered a black eye and, and then they need to sort of tell, tell their community about it. I mean, I think it's not a comfortable thing to say that, you know, you are a victim of an incident and they may feel like, you know, they, they were responsible in some way for, you know, not preventing it. Yeah. We have a new federal law, as you know, that is going to require critical infrastructure operators to uh, be you know, a bit faster, more forthright in sharing information with the federal government uh, in the event of a, of a major breach or a ransomware attack or ransomware attack. Is that a requirement that should exist for the K-12 sector? I, you know, I, I think that there absolutely needs to be better reporting, right? Um, whether, you know, CISA is the right place to report that in, uh, an organization like uh, K-12-6, my organization, or MSISAC, uh, or, or another group, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, sort of agnostic about that. But I think, you know, the, the notion that we have public institutions that are experiencing these incidents that have real consequences, both for taxpayers generally, and members of the society, as well as for those who are members of the school community, you know, I, I, I think there's a compelling interest that that information needs to be get shared and shared with all the various parties who have a need for different types of uh, information about those incidents. You've been tracking these incidents for several years now. Um, what did you see this year that uh, was different from previous years? You know, so uh, since 2016, I've identified over 1,300 publicly disclosed cybersecurity incidents against uh, school districts. This last year is actually the first year of the six that I've been doing this tracking where ransomware incidents were the 
uh, most frequently uh, reported type of incident. Um, you know, ransomware incidents first started spiking uh, around 2019 um, when local government agencies writ large uh, got into the sites of the ransomware actors. Uh, but school districts have continued to be, uh, you know, a focus of those threat actors over time. You know, I think what we've seen this year as compared to prior years is that the double extortion tactics that those groups employ, meaning where they steal, um, you know, personal data of school community members uh, alongside the, the encryption of files, that is routinely happening now, um, uh, where in years past, um, that was really more of a, an outlier. Um, I think we've also seen the rise of what some are terming triple extortion, right? Where these threat actors are not only stealing the data and locking down systems, but they're actually reaching out to school community members like parents yeah. and, um, you know, threatening them uh, to bring, you know, to, to put pressure on school districts to go back to the bargaining table and, and pay those ransomware demands. Let's talk about that a bit more because that happened uh, at a, a school district in Texas last year. When that happens, what uh, what what are schools supposed to do? What are parents supposed to do? Uh, what what can a group like yours do when that happens? You know, it's it's a really uh, tough spot for everybody involved. You know, in that case, uh, the school district asserted that uh, they didn't uh, believe the threat actor had actually uh, gotten any uh, personally identifiable information. You know, the fact then though that the you know the threat actor was able to contact parents directly. Um, certainly raises a question about, you know, whether or not the district was being forthright, or maybe even if the district knew, you know, from a forensic perspective, what had actually even happened on their network. Um, you know, this is a case where, you know, school districts are, you know, not only having to be put in the place of having to remediate and recover from these situations. Um, in some cases, you know, the amount of money that's required for school districts to do that is enormous in the millions of dollars. Um, you know, they're still trying to negotiate with the, the threat actors. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a nightmare uh, scenario. And I think at that point, there's very little um, that, that uh, you know, an outside party is going to be able to do to help. I mean, much of our work is really about helping school districts to um, prevent being in those situations in the first place. Um, but we're also big believers in, you know, being, you know, forthright with, uh, school community members uh, as much as possible, uh, as much as is feasible early on and letting them know, um, you know, what happened and what what the districts are doing to uh, to remedy the situation. Yeah. So I just want to wrap up by talking about what state IT and cybersecurity leaders can do to help uh, the K-12 uh, schools in in their states uh, on on this front obviously they have a lot on their plate but what are some of the you know two or three most important things that they can be doing to help out you know so i think we would say there's probably three things um that people can do to uh, to help out i mean the first is uh there's actually is a gap in the available guidance and uh support uh, with respect uh, for cybersecurity with respect to school districts. Well, there's no shortage of advice and tools and services that are available generally for public sector organizations. There really is very little 
that is K-12 specific, specific to the context of schools and to the realities of pretty small IT teams without security expertise running enterprise level operations, right? Multiple buildings, um, uh, thousands of devices, uh, food service, transportation, physical security, um, you know, IP communications, right? The, you know, school districts are very sort of open uh, communities running lots and lots of gear. So they need really that sort of targeted uh, support and advice. Um, and the generic uh, advice that's available is not always actionable for schools. Um, I do think that uh, it is worth considering whether or not schools should be held to a minimum cybersecurity standard. Um, you know, right now, like in many sectors, there is no floor on the cybersecurity practices required of schools. Um, and uh, I think it is feasible to implement some baseline common sense security standards that I think would uplift uh, the sector uh, quite a bit. And then finally, you know, in our work, we've also seen challenges from uh, the vendors and suppliers who serve school districts. And in, you know, just like this has not been a particularly uh, high priority for school districts, you know, they're not necessarily making a pri a, that it a priority uh, in the procurement process for all of the vendors and suppliers that they work with. You know, so some of the largest data breach incidents have happened not through the direct actions of school districts, but because of the practices of vendors. So I think there's work to be done on the procurement side and in looking uh, for more signs of uh, and signals of trust from those companies that serve schools. And, and I say companies, not just sort of technology companies or educational technology companies, because the fact of the matter is that, you know, any organization that is uh, serving an enterprise like a school district is a technology or organization in some form or fashion, you know, in 2021. It's just the reality of things. Doug Levin, the National Director of K-12-6, talking with Statescoop's Benjamin Freed. You can read more about K-12 cyber awareness at statescoop.com. I'm Jake Williams, host of Statescoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, Delaware CIO Jason Clark talks about efforts to close the final gaps in statewide broadband coverage. You can subscribe to the podcast at prioritiespodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Maryland Chief Data Officer Pat McLaughlin is building frameworks for data sharing across the state. In the first month after starting in his role as the state's data lead, he led a statewide data inventory effort. Now that effort's laying the groundwork for new data frameworks in government and prioritizing openness and sharing. Those frameworks build on the GIS and open data efforts the state has already experienced maturity with. McLaughlin is also a nominee for the StateScoop 50 Awards this year. You can vote for him at statescoop.com statescoop50. He tells me about how his role in the governor's office, as opposed to the IT department, sets him up for more collaboration across the state. So we have, um, you know, many, like any other state, you know, a lot of large agencies some smaller agencies, and then our Department of Information Technology manages um, many of those, uh, those agencies, but not all. Um, and really what that's resulted in is an opportunity to kind of step outside of the agency uh, collaboration and look at things a little bit more holistically. Um, I was fortunate enough to have worked in state government within the state of Maryland a number of years ago. So some of these relationships I had already had built uh, and others where we're building them from scratch. But that's really where uh, I see this role is, is helping to facilitate. So, so we're setting the, the kind of the, the guardrails or, or the guidance around how we want to approach enhancing our overall management of data across the state. 
but then really it's that working with those agencies to develop buy-in to ensure that the areas that we're looking to focus on actually meet their objectives as well. So I think that the, the top-down driver of, you know, we will do it this way and it's the only way to do it is not going to be a recipe for success. We really have to understand and collaborate closely with those agencies to understand where are their pain points, where do they find they don't have the ability to either scale up or they don't have the resources or the budget to really address some of these challenging areas around data management? And then how do we put together a roadmap or a plan to help you know, support maturing their process, but doing so in a way that's not overly invasive in, in their day-to-day -day operations if they don't have the resources to support it? Um, but sitting kind of outside of the, the specific IT space and being seen as a technology resource, this allows us to be more of a business resource and maybe have conversations that don't necessarily focus so much in on, you know, what software you have or, you know, tech resources you have and look more broadly about what's your overall business strategy from an operations standpoint, how are you looking to execute some of the things that you establish as objectives? And then where does the data management portion of that fit in? Um, so I think that that's an area that makes us um, maybe a little bit more strategically aligned with using data as a business asset because we're treating it less as a, an IT resource and more as a true asset of the entire you know, state of, uh, of Maryland or, or the government of Maryland. You talked about the uh, statewide data inventory. I mean, that's a, that's a hard task in general. <laughs> it's really hard to do in a month. Uh, how did you do it? How did it happen? So we, we kind of took the approach of we know we have a month let's do the absolute best we can in that time period to get what we know we have. So we know in any case, we're not going to have 100%, you know, comprehensive inventory at any point because there's dark data out there. There's, you know, applications that, you know, we may think are no longer uh, available, but in fact are on or, or have data stored. Um, so we definitely took the approach of we're going to work collaboratively as a team to do this. Um, we'll get as much done as we possibly can. Now, in some cases, these agencies had already started this inventory process before I was hired. So as part of the executive order, it announced an inventory was due. And many of the agencies saw that. And although my position hadn't been filled yet, um, started the initiative of, of kind of developing their, their portfolio. Um, others have had an inventory for years and were able to just basically kind of fit the information they had been capturing into the template we provided. Um, but we, we worked through small kind of chunks of work. So beginning of December, we kicked things off with one-on-one -on -one meetings. We touched base on basically a weekly basis to see where we can help, what we can do. Um, and also treated the, the process as one where it is, although inventories at times can seem as snapshots, we're looking at this as a uh, evolving process. So our inventory is one that's a living, breathing document that is owned by the agency and directly accessible by the agency and the data office, as they continue to populate that information as we work our way through the year, um, it will continue to enhance, become more comprehensive. And as we get to next December when it's due, it's less of that like crazy crush to, you know, we, we've got to rush to get it done. And it's been this, you know, curated um, information set that's been just managed throughout the course of the year and just becomes part of the business process. So that, that kind of was our approach to get there. And I'd, I'd be lying if I said, other than developing the template and having meetings, uh, it was really the agency data officers who drove that. It was you know, their responsibility and they, they stepped up and got it done. So. 
doing an inventory that scale and sort of planning for for this this year, the, the year that we're in now, I mean, I, I would imagine that that level of collaboration and those conversations opened up so many areas and projects and things that you could get done uh, in this first year on the job. I mean, what 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 did that open up? What's what sort of um, what are you excited about from that going forward? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I, I think really shed the shed light on is one, the sheer volume of data we have. It, it allows us to get a better understanding of where our authoritative sources are and where there's some kind of overlap or areas where maybe there's been data created from uh, convenience as opposed to authoritative responsibility or, or legislative responsibility. Um, so it, it, it's not overly exciting, but part of what I'm really excited about this year is establishing a really strong foundation of what our data portfolio looks like um, and being able to, to, to be in a position where we have really strong searchable discoverable data that is accessible to people throughout the state and allows for them to build upon the questions that they're asking with data or answering those questions with data. Um, so that, that's an area that I think, you know, it, it may get overlooked at time because it's not a real flashy analytics project or something that's going to be, um, you know, driving uh, really cool visualizations or anything like that. But it'll change our business process when someone who is looking for, to answer a question is able to search for and identify the resource that has that information and is able to work collaboratively with that agency, that department, that group to help them answer that question and drive the overall you know, operations of the state government. So that's the thing that I'm really excited about. And we, we haven't had that before. So it, it does put us in a position to any of these additional initiatives that are gonna be taken on, whether it's this year or five years from now it builds that foundation again to, to help us deliver that. Um, so I am, I'm really excited about that. Um, and again, it's not overly exciting, but it's critical for us to, to really be able to, to answer, uh, you know, questions moving forward, drive projects, um, you know, any policies that, that may need to be uh, determined, it gives us that, that foundational information to drive that. I think it was interesting that you you sort of called out uh, open data and GIS as two areas that you, you sort of used for some of that foundational uh, work to build those governance frameworks going forward. Um, you know, what does this level of coordination statewide do for for those efforts, right? I mean, I feel like open data was this giant movement, uh, you know, maybe close to a decade ago, and then only now as states are doing data inventories and doing some of this real work, are, are you actually able to have some of those really hard conversations about what can and cannot be open? And the same goes for GIS. GIS has been around forever. Uh, but but only you know in recent years with more collaboration between chief data officers and more collaboration between CIOs do GIOs really have that platform to to drive some real business across the states. I mean, what what does this all with those two places in mind? What does this look like going forward for them? So I think it, it the the intention is to continue to strengthen that. So the one thing that there there's two things, but the one thing that we have backing both of those, which I'm hopeful extends more and more across the country, is we have legislation that requires our open data. So we have an open data act that essentially any data that um, can be public facing must be machine readable and stored in our open data portals. So that's, that's a key driver to help continue to foster that, that availability of information to the public because a lot of our users on the open data side are actually internal state government users. It, it, I think that often gets lost that when we talk about open data, we're thinking you know research projects or, or different 
um, you know, projects or, or initiatives that are being taken on in the public space, citizen developers, things like that, where in fact, much of it is internal users going to the open data portal to consume that data via API for applications or, or whatever it may be. Similarly, our GIS program, uh, the MBI map is also through legislation. So those two areas kind of, it, by having the, the backing of law, it allows us to kind of really continue to build momentum and ensure it's gonna be here, it's not going anywhere. Um, I think what this hopefully does is allows us to leverage those consistent standards and those consistent practices program to program. As we look at, at the entire statewide initiatives, you'll see that kind of repetitive and it's, it's almost like a level of comfort, right? There's an understanding of what expectations are there. And if the agencies are managing information to those expectations, they easily align and collaborate with the open data program, with the GIS program, and how we're going about making that information either publicly available or you know the, that data that is protected, but is available internally behind firewall. Um, you know, what, what it need, what needs to go into making sure that that data is ready to be delivered that way. Um, one of the things I think we are able to see as part of this inventory is it did provide a really valuable alignment with an agency comes through and says, okay, we have these 900 data sets and 200 of them are public facing. We then can cross check that with the open data portal and ensure that we've got direct alignment. And then if there isn't an opportunity to go in and continue to, to enhance the open data portal with additional resource or data sets that perhaps hadn't been posted there before. So that's where we're continuing to see the collaboration with the three programs. You're four months into the gig, right? Four yeah. months. Uh, so, so four months in, uh, what, uh, what would you tell yourself when you were applying for the job? What would you tell yourself that you didn't know about going in? Uh, it's going to go really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and that the, the uh, you know, when, when developing a roadmap, ensure that those small sprints and iterations um, are achievable and that they build upon each other. Uh, that's the one thing that I think is, we, we have to be very deliberate in our approach um, is, is that we, we, when we pick, on, pick these tasks to complete, there has to be not only the, the scene value at the end, but they have to kind of springboard into another challenge, another opportunity. Um, and I think those are areas where when you're on the outside looking in, you kind of think of it as, well, we'll have all this time to sit around and kind of sit around, but to, to kind of develop this longer plan and, and really once you get started, you realize it's going to move fast. And if we want to be successful and get that buy-in, we have to get the buy-in fast. I, I, we all collectively as a team want to be following the grain of the wood. And in order to do that, build those, you know, those partnerships early on, show that you're delivering some value and then continue to build upon that. Um, so I think those, those are things I would, uh, I would advise myself six months ago going into this, you know, that um, you, you think it's going to go slower, it's not, and make sure that everything we're doing is deliberate. Now that that data inventory is done and you're sort of looking at it at that full year-long approach, what are you doing to to sort of tackle some of those gaps? You talked about dark data, you talked about apps that, uh, you know, can add additional challenges to something like this. Like, how are you, in the midst of all the other projects that you have going on, uh, how are you still sort of chipping away at, at some of that stuff that you might not have visibility on yet? So we're looking at a combination of the existing inventory that we've put together and are going to continue to maintain and how that bridges to the traditional data catalog. So we've got the business information from the inventory and more of that technical and operational data that comes from metadata management, what you'd have in the catalog itself. 
um, and looking at, at where we can kind of combine those two into a broader data discovery environment. Um, that does allow us to start looking at more automation and how we go and finding some of those, you know, uh, those crevices where maybe we're not seeing the data that we think we would see. Um, part of the value of the inventory provided those system environments. So it's not just the data, but it's the system that contains that data. And it's, you know, the, the location, whether it's a, you know, SaaS uh, product, whether it is, you know, hosted on internal servers, wherever it may be. So once we have insight into that, we can work with the agencies to establish some of that key to that also is giving those agencies control um, so it becomes more of a catalog of catalogs as opposed to you know one universal um, view in um, so i think that's the way we're trying to explore that but what we wanted to to make sure was crystal clear up front with the inventory is because it's going to evolve over the course of the year it's okay to keep adding and we may have information that is 60 percent complete you know of all the columns we're asking them or fields we're asking them to fill out they may still need to fill out additional fields over the course of the year, find out additional information or things come up where they realize that there's, you know, data uh, available or being managed that they were for some reason unaware of at the time. And that's okay. It's not, this isn't like a grading system. It's not something where you're going to get points off because you missed something last December. We want this to really turn into a value add for the entire state. In order to do that, there's gotta be an understanding that's gonna to continue to evolve and that unknowns are okay. We just, when we, when the unknowns show up, we need to make sure we're documenting them and then sustaining that moving forward. Pat McLaughlin, Chief Data Officer of Maryland. You can read more about Maryland's data efforts at statescoop.com. You can also cast your vote for him and others in this year's Statescoop 50 awards at statescoop.com slash statescoop50. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped put it together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.